We're live at the Jamaica Pegasus Hotel and uh, it's entertainment focus. Dennis our G Fitzbartley and, and the illustrious Bonnie Goodison. And we have with us, it's indeed a great pleasure to be in the presence of well, such a we're in the illustrious lady. A lady who they say is, when she sings a love song, no one else can sing it. Uh, some of us have been her slaves for years. A long, some of long us time. Have made love to her singing. Some of us have been in love with her, and some of us have even gotten the opportunity to finally meet her. Jamaica, if you will, let me present to you Miss Dion Warwick, and we're going to ask her all the questions you wanted to know. Okay. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Hi. <laughs> We're going to ask you some questions which you may have been over time and time again. Some which may be old questions with new twists. Mm -hmm. Also sitting with us is Don Taylor, a friend of Dion for years, and everybody in Jamaica knows of Don, so it's a family reunion. Yeah. Uh, you know. Thank you. Dion, uh, tell us about your family because you seem to have a very gifted family, close and in general. I have a most incredible family. Um, I come from a family of singers, gospel singers. Uh, my aunts and my uncles and my mom. Uh, known as the Drinkard Singers. They were the first gospel group to record for RCA Victor Records. They were the first gospel group to be invited to the Newport Jazz Festival when they were invited by Mahalia Jackson, who I affectionately called Aunt Haley. Um, they are my inspiration. I'm certain that I speak for Whitney as well, her inspiration, and anyone else that sings in my family, which happens to be everybody. Dee um, Dee? My sister, of Will course. Will you forget her? Never forget my sister. Can never forget I'm going to get to Dee Dee because she was a part of my gospel group called uh -huh. the Gospel Airs. Okay? Uh -huh. You can't outthink me. You know, can't you outtalk me, okay? <laughs> and you wanted me to tell this story, you won't tell it. <laughs> no, um, my, my group, the Gospel Heirs, was comprised of my sister Dee Dee, of course, uh, Sylvia Shemwell, who was a part of the Sweet Inspirations, who was also regarded as a sister because my mother literally raised her sister, Judy Clay, who was a part of the Drinkard Singers as well, uh, Myrna Smith, who I call my cousin because we grew up together, we were in the same church choir together, we, she was also in the Gospel Heirs. And, um, let's see, Sylvia and Carol, Carol Slade, who went on to do other things and she became a housewife and decided she didn't want to sing any longer. And then there was Estelle Brown, who was also a part of Sweet Inspiration. So Sweet Inspirations actually was burned out of the Gospel Heirs. Um, I think that, I'm sorry? Bessie Banks. Was she ever part of your group? Bessie Banks? Yeah. No. Mm -mm. Bessie Banks, um, of course I know Are you backed her at some, in some, at some stage? Uh, no, I didn't, but uh, Dee Dee did, um, and other members of the group did. 
like that. It's a gospel singer. Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Let, but I'm going to ask you a question. Let's, you, you spoke about your family and uh, the great tradition that you're coming from. When did Dion Warwick start as an artist, professionally? My first professional job was uh, in 1963. Mm -hmm. That was on stage or recording? On stage. On stage. When did the recording part my, of your career start. My first re record was Don't Make Me Over and it was released the latter part of 1962. And that was the beginning of the collaboration with uh, Bacharach and David. Exactly. Okay, tell us about that, uh, that, that coming together of so, such a great force. It was wonderful. Uh, I met Bert uh, on a recording session, a song he had written for the Drifters and he had just decided the two of them had decided, I should say, um, Backrack and David, mm -hmm. to write together and asked if I would do demonstration records of the songs that they were going to be writing, and yeah. I agreed. Mm -hmm. And uh, literally one thing led to another, and finally I recorded. So, so in fact, uh, the collaboration between Backrack and David started about the same time when you got together with them. Exactly. Okay. They were, they really weren't writing for anybody specifically, nor were they songwriting partners at the time I met them. They just consummated their deal. Were they musicians first, or were they songwriters, budding songwriters that, you know, just came together at a, at a, at a critical point when you were around and started this? Were they in the business before as producers, musicians, or songwriters? Well, yes, they both were. Hal David had written a song called Magic Moments for Perry mm -hmm. Como yeah. many years ago with another songwriter, and Bert had written a couple of songs as well with other songwriters, and... Uh, Famous music actually is the reason that they became a partnership. They started writing specifically for famous music. And uh, as a result of that, they had to get their demonstration records out of the songs that they had written to other artists to record. And there I was, the voice that they needed. And here okay. we are. What was the label that you were on? Scepter. And what was the, the, the scope of that label? Was it a very big label? Uh, no. Was it? Scepter, I guess if you had to compare it to something, was the East, the New York version of Motown. Mm -hmm. It was basically a mom and pop type of company. It was run that way by a lady named Florence Greenberg, the only female to own and operate a recording company successfully. Mm -hmm. um, she had, I think, some of the finest talent in the world on her label. She had the Shirelles. She had Tommy Hunt, she had Chuck Jackson, Maxine Brown, the Isley Brothers, um, B.J. Thomas. Um, she had Valerie and Nick. She had Mil Ronnie Millsap. Mm -hmm. Uh, and she had me. <laughs> <laughs> How long was that association with Scepter? I was with Scepter Records for close to 13 years, and unfortunately Scepter found it, could not compete in the world of conglomerates after a period of time, and I had no choice but to leave, and uh, Florence had no choice but to close the doors. Just uh, taking a step back, after Don't Make Me Over, what followed? Uh, two flops. <laughs> A song that I love called Make the Music Play. And a song called uh, 
that can release words. A tune called This Empty Place. And unfortunately, there were wonderful turntable hits. The, the DJs loved it. They played it all the time, but nobody wanted to buy it. And shortly after that, a disc jockey named Murray the K in New York turned a record over and on the B side of a record called Any Old Time of the Day, it's a tune called Walk On By. Okay. And started on from there. After Walk On By, there came an album, am I right? Yes, it's called Anyone Who Had a Heart. Anyone Who Had a Heart. How well did it do? Walk On By? The, the album. The album. The album did exceptionally well. Exceptionally. All right. So you're young, fresh talent, uh, about to go on the road. Can you tell us about the early days on the road? Oh, my. <laughs> a lot of that, a lot of laughs. <laughs> and many times we didn't get paid, so we had to laugh. <laughs> tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was quite exciting. I mean, it, it was... Just about 20 years old, uh, from East Orange, New Jersey, and had always ambitiously felt that I was going to travel the world. Not only knew how or why, but I knew I was going to do it. And here came an opportunity not only to travel the world, but also to do what I loved doing, that was singing. Um, and they weren't easy years, and yet they were, in the same breath I can say. We worked what we call the Chitlin Circuit. Uh, we did the Southern uh, nightclubs or the um, places like the, um, in Atlanta, uh, Royal Peacock, uh, in uh, North Carolina, place similar to the Royal Peacock. Um, we did all the theaters, of course, the Apollo, uh, the Uptown, uh, Royal, the Regal, uh, hey, you know. What was the one in Boston that got burned down? That was Blinstrom's. That was the Sugar Shack. Yeah, I never worked Sugar Shack. Never but you, but you never seemed to work most of the chipping circuit that most of the other acts did. Yes, I did. And you didn't seem to work very long. I did. I, I was on, my first tours were the Henry Wynn tours with Sam Cooke and Jackie Wilson and Chuck Jackson and uh, Gorgeous George and Lots of Papa and the Upsetters Band. Yeah, I did. Basically. I mean, I, it, you know, it was just a case of my music was so different than anything that was being played or sung at the time because of the songwriters that had uh, attached themselves to me and I to them. Uh, we were as good for each other as uh, anyone could be. Um, and I was singing music, you know, something that I was studying. How, how many were in the rooms at that time? In the... What kind of rooms were you playing to? Total audience. Oh, my. We were playing arenas, 18, 20,000 people. Those On your first tour? Tours. Yeah. I mean, I was with some heavyweight duty. <laughs> the Orleans, Sherelle, Chuck, Jackie. I mean, man, come on. We had the thing going on. Henry Wynn was what Ringling Brothers are to circuses. He was to tours, for black acts especially. Well, Dion, uh, looking at your chart successes, I get the impression that um, you did almost as well or, not, or better on the pop charts than you did on the R&B charts. 
Um, uh, is, is it because your sound? Because it, I don't think it's, it's a totally black sound. That's the, the feeling I get. I don't. And as an extension, it seems to, that to have question. crossed over yeah. quite early. And as an extension to that question, I was going to ask you what type of radio played your song because of the type of music that you were associated with. Okay, um, interesting that you should point something out like that. Um, I very, very happily sit and let you know that I, I was known as the recording artist that, that bridged the gap. Early, very early. Um, I had the ability, fortunately, not only with the songs I was singing, that was reaching a wide range of people, uh, the capability of going, being played on pop radio, as well as R&B radio, as well as jazz, and on some occasions gospel. Um, I think the a very interesting story comes to mind, as a matter of fact, to kind of, I think, sum this whole thing up. There was a radio station in New York City called uh, WWRL. And Rocky Roberts, Rocky G. G, G, Rocky G. Rocky G was the program director of this particular station. Alfie was the recording out at the moment. And um, he said, in no uncertain terms. I will never play this record. I want you to know that it is not black enough. And I, I looked at him as if he was, you know, with two heads. I mean, anybody can t take a look at me and see that I'm not of anything other than black uh, origin. And uh, so we discussed it. And I said, well, you know, Rocky, you do what you think is best for your station. Apparently, everybody else is playing it. And I'd say about four or five weeks later, I happened to be listening to the station, and here's the number one recording on our station, sung by Dion Warwick, Alfie. And I called him. I called him immediately, as soon as I heard the first strain. And I said, I'd like to speak to the station manager, please, who's on the air. Who's calling Dion Ward? Oh, yes, certainly. And they put me right through to him, and we were on the air. And I asked him, so who's that white girl you're playing on your station? <laughs> <laughs> and from that day to this, in fact, you know, Rocky, we laughed about that many, many years ago. You know, the fact that I think we really have, we've got to learn that music really has no color. Yeah. It is whatever the, the listening ear decides. It may have a different beat, it may have a different sound, but it has no color. But well, I think what could have been the cause was the, the kind of instrumentation used, because you were more, when the drips did something before you, but to bring out the whole pile of strings and the voices, you know, it gave us a, a, a white sound almost, you know, and your voice was almost like... A different sound. You know, it, well, it was different. It gave but, it gave it a, a, um, a pleasant... Um, yeah. Sound. It gave it, 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 it expanded it, that's all. It just expanded. What's your octave range? At that time? At the best year times. Oh my. Oh, I, I, I am, I'm still pretty, pretty good at it. Um, I'm about an octave and a half. Say it again? Octave and a half. Oh. Octave and a fifth, octave and a sixth. Somewhere in there. I still am. Yeah. Lastly, um, you're universally trained at music. I think I read something. I am a doctor of music. Oh, yeah? Yes. Um, you did you study the classics? 
Yes, I did. Because your voice would be, you know, it would, would so much suit that kind of singing, you know? So I, I, I really want to I'm not concentrated on singing classics. I play classics. My minor was piano and my major was education at the University of Hartford in Connecticut, the Hart College of Music. So um, I played for a lot of opera singers, <laughs> you know, a lot of our opera majors I played for, but uh, that was not my... I guess for the black folks in those times, you were too educated. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you finish your grad uh, your undergraduate studies before going into professional singing or during? I finished. I got my my doctorate while I was on the road. I was tutored for both uh -huh. my masters and my doctorate. Uh, but you did your undergraduate. I did my before my bachelor's. Singing. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. When did you leave Florence? I left Florence in 1971. In 1972, SEPTA closed their doors. In 1971, I signed with Warner Brothers Records. All right. Just before we go back, we, just before we take it beyond that, how many albums did you do for Florence? Well, I was there for 12 years, and we had uh, an average of about two a year, so I'd say about 24, 20, 23, 24 albums. How many went gold? How many um, platinum? None platinum. Not one platinum record with, with Scepter. Um, gold, I got, oh, wow. Maybe 10, maybe 11. Grammys to that point? At that point, I had two Grammys. Two Grammys to that yes. point. All right, let's take a break and come away. No, you've moved. Uh, where do you go? <laughs> I went to Warner Brothers Records, and I usually... Who was the... Uh, Mo Austin was the president of uh, uh, Warner's at the time, and Joe Smith was the vice president, and those were the two people that wooed me. And uh, I usually kind of um, put it all in a nutshell and say that I left my mom, went to visit some rich uncles, and left and went and found my dad when I went to Ariston. So that's uh, the way I put it. I was not very comfortable at Warner's. It actually um, came at a very strange time. It was the onslaught of disco music, Brett Backrack and how David decided they were going to split. Um, they didn't know what to do with me. You know, they, they bought a package and they just didn't know what to do. All I had to do was pick up the phone and call my mom, you know, accept her. But um, I made some wonderful records there, I think. I did um, a record with uh, Tom Bell. I did um, an album with uh, Michael Amardian. That, is where, that was the period when you did uh, House Is Not a Home. No. no, that was no, Scepter. No, no, no. Oh, that's a Scepter. Definitely Scepter. Those were the Scepter yeah, years. The, then came you was the oh, one of okay, Brothers yes, Day. Yes, that was, yes, yes. And so in fact... first number one. Mm -hmm. yeah. My first number one record. No, really, how come you only had two number ones? I've had three. Three. Thank God, three. Then four. came you... Four, 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 four. 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 That's what Prince are That's what Prince are four. I know I'll never love this way again. And Deja Vu. So, I bet. But it's four. I think one of the things... 
little valley on the road and knowing the period that you're talking about is that as, as much as she crossed over, in those days it was hard for black artists to get the yeah. water on the pop chart, and, and she crossed more than anybody else. <laughs> You, but, you, uh, you're tell me something again. During, during the, the period of soul music, so to speak, which might have been from the start of the 60s or 65, you say you, you went on the road sometimes with um, Sam Cook? Yeah. What kind of guy was he? Well, Sam was a wonderful man. I met Sam Cook when I was about maybe eight or nine years old in yeah. Soul Stairs. And uh, Soul Stairs worked an awful lot with my mother's group, my aunts and uncles. Um, as a matter of fact, um, there was a period of time there where we thought that Sissy Whitney's mother and Sam were going to get married. Yeah. yeah. He was very, very close to my family. Uh, loved him an awful lot. And uh, to this very day, missed him a lot. Is he the best singer you've heard? No. He's not the best singer I've ever heard. Who is? My father. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Yes, my daddy was the best singer I've ever heard. Okay, then. Some, some of the first black men I read who um, really took control of his career. Publishing, in terms of publishing company. company and uh, what Well, he was fortunate too that he image. had a wonderful black man with him named Alexander. Yeah. That's right, and. Uh, you loved Sam and being protected him and guided him very, very well. So, you know, um, you have to applaud the other as yes. well. You have heard stories about um, his death being um, a setup, so much something sinister. I don't know. You know heard? I look at his death like I look at most people's death. It was God called. Oh, okay. It was his turn. Can we just get back to the the years at? The frustrated years at Warner's. Mm -hmm. You may not have been much of a recorded quote unquote star in those years, but I think you found more, a lot of acceptance in the nightclub business now. Yeah, you know, it was, um, I think that that's the time that most of us who are recording artists are kind of put to the test when the uh, recordings aren't as lucrative as they were in the past. Uh, that's when you find out what you're made out of. You know, if you are the entertainer that you think you are or you're not. And if you're really that dependent upon a hit record. Also, I think they were having problems with your black department. The, well, the people who were heading there. I, I think more than anything else, like I said, they didn't really quite know what to do with me. And then with the fact that uh, Burt Backrack and Hal David were no longer writing, they felt that the combination, there was something wrong with it, when in fact... I still sing the same way, you yes. know? So, but you know, the, that's a mistake that um, they were allowed to make. And, and uh, the fortunate part is that uh, once I felt that I did not need to be a part of that syndrome, and it also gave me an opportunity to, to expand my family, get to know my husband better, sleep in my own bed for a few minutes, you know, uh, and listen to a music that was being created and stations, radio stations created for, called Disco, make new friends and new areas of music. Uh, in the 80s, you got, you got new prominence, newfound prominence with the advent of the program called Solid Gold, yes. which was done first by Marilyn McCool, 
No. Uh, it was done with you first? By me. Okay, yes. Uh, how did this come about, the solid gold here? Which uh, was basically a kind of disco. You know what, what solid gold was? It was actually, it started as a two-hour special to be presented two hours before the Grammy on Grammy night. It was a presentation of the recordings of that past year. And more specifically, those songs that were nominated. Uh, the first show, the first two-hour special, was hosted by Glenn Campbell and myself. And out of that, um, Paramount felt that they wanted to keep the show on, and they didn't meet Glenn Campbell as a co-host, and okay. they wanted me. Uh, and it was very successful. In fact, we were the number one for a very music long time. Uh, show on, on television. Did that spin off into a major lucrative record deal? Well, um, I was already with Scepter, uh, with, uh, with Arista Brothers. at that time. No, oh. Arista. Oh, Arista. Yeah. So I was kind of enjoying a pretty good recording career then to myself. Clive Davis is uh, credited uh, for bringing about that new period of Dionne Warwick hits during the Arista period. And he's also credited for creating Whitney Houston. How did this Clive Davis union come about? Let me, let me just do this. Um, and to be perfectly honest with you, yeah. Clive Davis is, as far as I'm concerned, probably one of the consummate record men in our industry. He knows more about the record industry than most people who have been in it twice as long as he has. And I do give him that kind of credit. He is probably the only record executive that I know that can almost disassociate himself with the business and become John Doe. Um, with regards to being credited for the resurgence of my recording career, I will give him a yes on that and that he believed in the talent. He took the time to put me with the proper producer. We collectively listened to songs and chose them. And he put his, his strong arm behind the promotion of the first year and a half, two years of Dionne Warwick at, at Arista. Um, I guess because I'm seeking another record company should give you what the ultimate end has been. Uh, the fact that he is credited with Whitney's rise to stardom, um, I would say that he's been absolutely instrumental in preparing the way. Uh, with regards to what Whitney Houston happens to be to this very day, uh, that ain't Clyde Davis. <laughs> No, let me ask you a question out, out of that question. When Clive approached you about coming with Arista, uh, a label which had a lot of female singers, how did you feel? Did you think you would have been comfortable? Uh, yes, in the way that he approached me, uh, because I had literally said, well, you know, maybe my time is over. You know, that, that's happened. And you, there are times where you just have to face the facts of life. Um, and I'm an accredited instructor of music. And I felt, you know, maybe now is the time that I can go on and do what I want to really do, and that's teach. And uh, Clive literally told me, you may be finished with the business, but the business is not finished with you. And just give me the opportunity. And I um, said, okay. 
you worked with a, a lot of young and exciting producers during the Arista years. Yes. Barry Manilow, Ilota Vandross, just to name two. Which was your favorite? Um, actually, all of them. And that's not uh, being diplomatic. It really isn't. Yeah. Uh, every single producer that I've worked with from the very beginning up to present time are friends, every mm. single one of them. And each one of them brings something different to the table. You know, each one of them has a very, very specific and special talent. Um, I would never compare Barry to Luther, Luther to Barry Gibb, Barry mm. Gibb to Jay Graydon, Jay Graydon to Marty Martin, uh, or any of the others that I've had the pleasure of working with. This is an impossibility to do that. Each one of them are distinctively brilliant in their own way. Question. That's what friends are for. Yeah. How did that come about? Yeah, the strangest thing in the world. Um, Bert and I uh, had just really gotten back together. And uh, that was one of the things that we were preparing for was a session. Um, and he played me three or four songs, one of which was on my own. <laughs> but at any rate, I, uh, after rehearsal, I was at home and it was, you know, that insomnia period of time where you can't sleep and just kind of surf the television. And I came upon a, mus uh, a movie called uh, Night Shift and uh, watched it for a while and drifted off back to sleep and at the end they rolled the credits and under the credits I heard the song. And the song was uh, recorded by uh, Rod Stewart. Then I sat up in bed because I recognized, I mean, I guess after you know your music. 30 years of working with a person musically, you kind of recognize his touch with music itself. The lyrics were uh, not that familiar. You know, I could not say that was Hal David. But um, I watched the credits roll and saw that Bert and Carol had written the song. And the next day at rehearsal, I asked him about it. And he was as surprised about it as the look on your face when I said I heard it by Rod Stewart. Uh, he said, only three people have heard it now, you, Carol, and me, <laughs> you know. And I told him that that was something I'd love to, to record. Um, and I told him I wanted my friends to do it with me, a la a we are the world type thing, but not as massive as that. Just people that I care about and I know care about me. And I got out my little phone book and found out who was in town. I said, you want to sing some words with me? And they showed up. How long did it take to record? Actually, it took us um, about 16 hours, including the video. Yeah, it was magic. Absolute magic. Can we take a break? Sure. Last break. What was Italy like? It was wonderful. It really was. The weather was great. Spring over there now. And it was a little town that I'd never visited before in Italy called Torino. Uh-huh. Uh, beautiful, beautiful auditorium. And very responsive audience. We had a good time. Spent a lot of money on fashions? No, I didn't have a time. Oh. <laughs> you know, I left on Sunday. We performed Monday, and I left Monday, Tuesday to come here. Oh, boy. That's <laughs> too quick. I, uh, I want to ask that, you. Uh, go ahead. Go, go. I want to find out from you. With the, the success of Boys to Men and people like Gerald Levert and even this current CD between um, father and son. Yes. Is this that type of 
doo-wop, street corner, I mean, real vocals. Do you think it's coming back into the music? Undoubtedly, and it, nothing pleases me more. Me nothing too. pleases yeah. me more. It's, it's, it's about time we get to a melody again and, yeah. and some wonderful, wonderful lyrics that speak of positive love and concern about people and mankind. And um, You know, we've always had our lives guided by what we listened to musically. Our radios really dictated how we lived our lives. Yeah. Um, and we all walked through a period of time where we smiled a lot, we said hello to each other, we were concerned about your welfare and your well-being, and um, all of a sudden it turned to tragedy and, and uh, ugliness. You know, I, I think we, we do see it and we, we have to live in a real world, obviously. We can't ignore the fact that there are those kinds of things about us, but there are ways to... to to deter it and to turn it around. And I think with the, the unvent of people like, as you say, Boys to Men, uh, Eddie and Gerald, um, and the, the, the other groups that have been around for quite a while who are enjoying success, uh, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, um, Teddy Pendergrass, right? Uh, what about Jodeci? Josie, yes, they they have songs on some of their their on the what? albums that uh, speak to positive love without getting misogynistic or or crazy, you know. And as I've said to our babies who um, who have entered the world of rap music and specifically the thing that we call gangsta rap yeah. or um, the rap music that uh, kind of goes into the misogynistic areas. You know, I, I don't know them personally, nor do they know me personally. Um, some of them I do. Yeah. And I've even asked, you know, you want to get a message out to me. Obviously, you're angry about something, and uh, you have a story to tell. And we need to hear what you're trying to say to us. Mm. It's the only way we're going to be of some service. Yeah. However, uh, I'm not going to listen to you if you're going to curse at me or if you're going to call me out of my name and uh, be derogative towards my womanhood or my children. It doesn't make sense. You're not going to get any response other than what you're getting, and that's a deaf ear. And a rebellion, a rebellion from me towards you. You know, the, uh, Dion, what, what I was really getting at, I'm talking about the, 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 the quality of the vocals. Mm -hmm. Maybe because you came from a background of a church where the, 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 most of the singers in your time, especially yeah. the black singers, came out of a black experience in the church. And mm -hmm. so we had to harmonize with our music. So you had to be able to That's true. sing. To sing. sing. Yes. What I'm saying, Basic. do you think this is coming back? Yes, I do. Well, you know, what I'm getting at is that um, this little girl named Mary J. Blige. Yeah. Nobody knew she could sing. There's a little girl named Queen Latifah. Nobody knew she could sing. All of a sudden, they're finding that that's the way to get their message across. You know, and, and we have to get back to the basics. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and it's really taking care of each other and, and caring about each other. Yeah. And that's what our music has always been. Okay. Leon, you've been around for some time in the music business, and you have seen all of the changes in terms of production standards, production style. Uh, what prevails now? Do you think it's an exciting thing? Do you think it has a lot of disadvantage versus advantage with the new technology sampling, 
that kind of thing? Um, I, I, I kind of think the sampling is a lazy way out. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't require any brain power. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to sample no a piece of music. Exactly. Um, those people who are dedicating themselves to creating and being um, innovative, mm -hmm. that's, that's exciting. It's very exciting. Uh, the fact that they're utilizing what we're in, the computer age, they're using computers. Um, I think it's really wonderful. I think it's, and they're learning the craft. They're yes. really learning it. Yes. It's not a case of by mistake. They are getting into the, the computer and they're really doing what they're supposed to do. I find that quite exciting. Um, I'd like to see more of our kids get more interested in the, um, the do re mis of music, the notes, what the they really mean. Um, I'd like to see them writing on paper and mm. staff. Um, I'd like to see them um, create the ambiance that uh, will be the cushion that they're going to sit on for the yes. rest of their lives. You know, um, You've noted some of the, the, the new great singers that are around, and uh, we've seen the likes of Babyface as a songwriter, mm -hmm. who is awesome in terms of the music business right now, mm -hmm. and a lot of black producers, a lot of, a lot of black record companies mushrooming all over the place. Uh, do we need more, as, or is it sufficient as it is now? Um. Well, unfortunately, we have also the big five, the conglomerates, mm -hmm. who are eating all these other little companies up as they grow and sprout wings. It's yeah. like, uh-oh, let me get this one and gobble it up. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're doing. Um, I think we, we are creating a lot of baby faces, which is fabulous. No one is proud of him than I am. He's a dynamite young man. Dynamite. He's got his head and heart in the right place. And that obviously shows with the music he writes. Um, I think he made a statement just recently in either Ebony or Essence, and I can't remember which one of the magazines it was, but the essence of what he said was that if you can't write songs about love, you can't write. I know that pleased you. I know that pleased you. <laughs> Without a doubt. <laughs> Let me ask you two questions. Uh, I see everybody getting jumpy. Nothing to do with music now. Okay. You, there are two things that over the years you've been associated with. Interior, de uh, interior decorating mm -hmm. and psychics. Uh -huh. Now, I know nothing about either. Yeah. You just run... Well, I know a lot about interior design. I don't know much about psychics either. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, the other about psychics is that I've, I've gone to a couple, and they've been uh, pretty much right on with me. I host a show entitled Psychic Friends Network. That a lot that of people believe in. Of course they do. You know, you'd be surprised how many people believe in it. I, I was, I'll tell you that. Um, I was more surprised that um, the... Um, naysayers. And I said, what, what are you doing that for? What are you doing that for? And the next time I turned my television on, there they were. Yes. You know, uh, it's an honest living. I get a check every month, and it keeps my lights on and food on my table. Um, and uh, doesn't keep your name in, in, the, in the limelight also. Yeah, that it does. <laughs> but you know, it, but it doesn't um, deter me or. Yeah 
prevent me from professing my love for God and uh, my complete existence because of my, my dear Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, as most people would like to believe, you know, but that then they've got their own set of problems <laughs> and I don't have time for them. I got enough of my own. Um, with regards to interior design, I've been doing that for the past 12 years and we've been pretty lucky, I must say. Very, very small company that have been able to come to the Dion World Design Group. Uh-huh. Well, Dion, uh, you write very little. I'm sorry? I noticed you write. Yes, I did. Very little. Very little. I don't have time. Huh? I think that's a talent unto itself. I just wondered, you know. I really do. I think that you just don't sit down and, and write. You don't like it, really? I don't have time. I do like it. I, I find that when I've, I've written something that I've recorded and people have accepted it, I feel elated. But uh, Finally, the Last questions. My last questions. Your last uh -huh. questions. <laughs> How many times have you been married? Twice to the same man. Bill? Bill Elliott, yes. Oh. Love, true love? I'm sorry? Love, true love? Uh, it ended up being that. Love's <laughs> better the second time around. Second time around. It second is better. Second time around. Uh, my final question. Uh, you've, you're touring right now, obviously, Italy, yeah. Jamaica, and wherever next year going. What is in store in terms of touring, and uh, when is the next album due? Uh, hopefully the next album will be out sometime in the first part of the fall, September, October. Um, we're going to be in Europe, Japan, and then I'm going to go home for a minute, South America, and, and rest. <laughs> for more than an hour yeah. um, and uh, then get prepared to go out with Gladys and uh, Shaka and I are going out with sisters. What is the new album like? Dionne Warwick. Finally back to me. Okay. Uh, last question. How many kids? I have two young men. Two young men? Yes. David right. is 27 and he made me recently a grandmother. Uh, and my youngest is 23, Damon. I saw you with a little girl. Yes. Who is she? It's my granddaughter. Oh, your granddaughter? Yes. Uh-huh. Final question. How did you get in the nightclub circuit, the Vegas circuit? Um, you know, at knowing, the time, knowing the problems well, for people of color. Um, well, I don't know. I really don't know. Um, I obviously was someone that uh, the audiences wanted to come in and see. At the time, Jack Entrada was the owner and operator of the Sands Hotel, and that was my first main room. Um, I brought in what they call the high rollers, as did Sammy and Frank and Dean and the rest of the guys that worked that room. And that was the beginning of my nightclub experience, which was uh, 1969, 70. How, how many months of the year do you tour? Now, or do you work? Now, it's, 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 I keep saying I'm going to slow down. And it, every time I say that, it gets worse. <laughs> it gets to be more and more and more. Uh, but I have gotten to the point where I, I will go like for three months and I'll take a couple of months off because, you know, I'm... I'm getting younger every day and I gotta Obviously. take a little better care of myself. Okay, well, of course, of course, okay of Dion, it's indeed a pleasure to 
you have you here and it's, uh, we enjoyed having you here. Thank you. And uh, all the best of luck in your wonderful career. Thank you. And uh, good luck with the show in Jamaica. We know you leave, leave us breathless and we'll remember the performance for a very, very long time. Thank you. Okay. Well, the pleasure is really mine. I have looked forward to this for years. I saw you on Soulsville. At the Caribbean Theatre in um, 66. Uh, even today, I was speaking to Ron Nasrallah, who was the lighting man. Yes. And he said, because you have such a wide repertoire, you just stood one place all night. He said, you're a lighting man's dream. You didn't have to be like I just stood one and place and sang. <laughs> On behalf of Entertainment Focus and JBC FM, and JBC AM and FM, JBC Radio 1 and FM, <laughs> it is truly an honor and a privilege. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very you. much. My pleasure.